Please take your seats and then take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 once again. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll break in at verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Let's hear the Lord's word. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited at the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Amen. God bless the reading of his infallible word. Bow with me, please, for a moment of prayer, and let's ask the Lord to open our minds, our eyes, our hearts to his truth. Let's all pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we turn to the throne of God before we turn to the word of God. We know that Christ is our prophet. We pray that he will be the one preaching, revealing the will of God to us this day. May the Spirit of the Lord be upon the preacher and upon the people. Give us a season in thy word that will not be passing, not momentary, not fleeting, Lord, but a season of blessing that will remain with us for a long, long, long time to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As I pointed out last Lord's Day morning, this last section of 1 Peter 3 is all about the triumphs of Christ through his suffering and death. That would have been a very relevant subject for Peter's audience. We've clearly seen that these early Christians were suffering, suffering that not only brought great sorrow to their hearts, but obviously brought great fear as well. Sometimes the persecution that came from their enemies ended in death, sometimes very anguishing, painful death. It's hard for us who have never had to face that level of persecution for our faith. It's hard for us to really sympathize with them. We may be able to empathize with them, to put ourselves in their shoes, to understand what they went through. But it's when you can share in their feelings that you sympathize with them. And the only way you can truly sympathize with someone 
in what they're going through and, and therefore be a real help to them in what they're facing is to have to gone through something similar yourself. That's the only way you can truly sympathize. A great deal of our ability to comfort and to encourage others who are suffering is directly related to the comfort and the encouragement that we have received from others in our sufferings and our afflictions and troubles. Paul makes this very point in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He wrote that the God of all comfort comforteth us in all our tribulation that in order that there's purpose in order that we may be able dunamis is the word power ability in order that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Listen. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. I take Paul to mean that the more I'm tried with difficulties and afflictions, the more I am able to comfort others who are afflicted, because the more my afflictions, the more comfort I get from God. I learn things. I am able to sympathize because I'm going through, I've gone through what they are facing. That I might be enabled to do that. Our ability to sympathize with someone is directly related to our entering into, experiencing something of what they have faced or are facing. Peter has been making use of that fact in his desire to encourage and console these Christians who were facing fiery trials. But his focus in all of this has not been on any personal suffering that he's endured, but on the suffering that Christ endured. Remember that they, they are suffering. And they are suffering for well doing. They're not suffering for evil doing. They are suffering wrongfully. It's unjust what they are having to face at the hands of their enemies. It was simply because they were Christians. And they were despised because they were Christians. And for no other reason. They were suffering. So Peter brings up to them to comfort them and to encourage them to help them. He brings up to their remembrance the sufferings of Christ. Suffering that was for them, he says back in chapter 2. Leaving them an example that they would follow in his steps. 
In verse 18, the apostle says, chapter 3, that Christ has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. It was clearly a case of suffering for well-doing, not for any evil doing that Christ committed. But Peter doesn't stop with the suffering of Christ to comfort and to encourage them. That would be enough, you know, to know to know that when I suffer unjustly at the hands of men, I am simply following in the train of Jesus Christ. That's sufficient reason to endure the suffering. I'm, I'm just walking in the steps of the Master. But Peter turns from Christ's suffering as he seeks to comfort them. He turned from Christ's suffering to his success, from his humiliation to his honor. Yes, he suffered. Yes, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was quickened, made alive by the Spirit. This is where Peter underscores the triumphs of Christ through his sufferings and death, all in order to encourage and to console these suffering saints. I said there are two main areas that Peter is addressing. Last, last week, we looked at the triumph of Christ's suffering and death as seen on earth. The triumph that came through that as seen on earth. That's what verses 19 through 22 are chiefly about. The power of the risen Christ and the extension of his kingdom. Yes, he suffered and died. But he also rose from the dead... And he was empowered in a way after his death that far exceeded his power before his death. Quickened in spirit, made alive spiritually. This was, and it continues to be to this very point in time, a display of his triumph through suffering and death as seen on earth. But there was a second aspect in all of this. Peter turns our attention in this last verse to the triumph of Christ through his suffering and death as seen in heaven. In verse 19, it's mainly about Christ's humiliation. Verse 22 the emphasis is mainly on Christ's exaltation. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. Peter makes four statements in verse 22 that I want us to consider. They'll make up the points of my message. First, he says, Jesus Christ arose from the dead. Then he says, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Then Peter writes, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God. And the fourth thing he says is that Jesus Christ reigns over all spiritual and earthly powers. So let's unpack it. First, Jesus Christ arose from the dead. Peter began to deal with that fact at the end of verse 18. 
after being put to death in the flesh, he died literally. That was part of his humiliation. Christ was quickened, made alive by or in spirit. Then there's this brief digression, if I can call it that, if you ever talk about the Holy Ghost digressing. It was a purposeful digression. But therein there's, there's this digression in verses 19 through 21. But now Peter returns to this truth of Christ's exaltation at the end of verse 21, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's now coming back to what he started to talk about. It's obviously something Peter did not want to miss. He wanted to emphasize, and that fact is not something strange in the New Testament. The emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, the apostles would find it very, very strange that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for all intents and purposes, is only emphasized once a year in the life of the church, present-day church. They would find that very, very strange. Easter Sunday, we call it. That wasn't their mentality. It certainly wasn't their mode of operation. The doctrine of Christ's resurrection was as much a point of emphasis, his resurrection from the dead, as his death upon the cross. Read through the book of Acts and see how often the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. First sermon at Pentecost. The Holy Ghost has been poured out upon them. And he's preaching away. Major point of his message was the Old Testament prophecy that Christ would be raised up, from, the Messiah would be raised up from the dead to sit on the throne of David. He's talking to Jews. They knew that prophecy. It's a major point of his message that he's making there. And he says that he has indeed been raised from the dead, and we are all witnesses of that fact that he's risen from the dead. But then you go to Acts chapter 4. The Sadducees are very angry that these apostles taught the people, and I quote now, preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It was all in relation to Christ's own resurrection that they preached the resurrection from the dead. Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin in that same chapter for healing the lame man in the temple. And they put to them this question, by what power, by what name have you done this? Peter says, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. It just came out. It was part of their message constantly. Peter and John in that same chapter returned to Jerusalem, to the church. And there's a great, great prayer meeting. 
We can read that prayer in Acts chapter 4. Don't do it now. But in that prayer, their petition was that God would give them all boldness to preach God's Word. That they wouldn't let the fear of these Jews silence them. They understood what they were facing. Lord, give us, give us boldness to preach the Word. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. Two verses later, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. This was an answer to their prayer. Boldly they preached the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas have come to Antioch. Paul says, preaches to the Jews that they had laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 17. Now it's Paul and Silas. Barnabas has left the party. Paul and Silas are at Thessalonica. And Paul, as his manner was, this is what he did every time he went into a city to preach Christ. As his manner was, he went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. That was his custom. Paul goes from Thessalonica to Athens to preach the gospel. While there, he encounters certain Greek philosophers. Some of those philosophers called him a babbler. The Greek word means a buffoon, an empty talker. But others said that he was a preacher of, I quote now, strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. You see the pattern? You see the emphasis? You see why I say the apostles would think it very strange that present-day Christianity emphasizes Christ's resurrection really only one time in the year. It's certainly something that either through their preaching or through their epistles they set forth as a great prominent, fundamental doctrine of the gospel. And why wouldn't it be that way? Why wouldn't it be that way? I was struck in what I will call providential occurrence of uh, Spurgeon's 
morning and evening devotional uh, this past Friday morning. It was his morning devotional, and he was, took us his text, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. He began by stating that the whole system of Christianity rests upon the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. For if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Ye are yet in your sins. He then went on to list five things why this is such a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. And as I was thinking about this very passage in 1 Peter 3 that I was going to preach, I said, this is providential here. Five things he points out why it's so vital. First, it's the surest proof of Christ's divinity. He quotes Romans 1.4, Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That's the, that's the defense of his own divinity. The resurrection. Why wouldn't you want to emphasize it? That's what the apostles did. Christ's sovereignty depends on his resurrection. Spurgeon went on to point out. Quoting Romans 14, verse 9, For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. He was resurrected that he might be Lord. God has tied his own sovereignty to his resurrection. Thirdly, our justification is affirmed by his resurrection. That's very vital, you know, that we know we're justified. We are in real problems if we don't know that we're justified in the sight of God. But Paul says again, Romans 4.25, he was delivered for our offenses, that's his death, and was raised again for our justification. Not in order to justify us, but to declare that we are justified in the sight of God. It's declarative justification. It must be really important, folks. You see why they emphasized it. Our regeneration, our regeneration, our new birth is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's more fundamental to salvation than that, I ask you? We, we, we covered this back in chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, verse 3. We are begotten again. There's the new birth. We are begotten again unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is regeneration directly linked to the resurrection of Christ. Our own resurrection from the dead depends on it, finally. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. We'll be raised again because Christ was raised from the dead. 
Perhaps nowhere is it's this resurrection of Jesus, its vital importance to salvation and all of its aspects seen so clearly as in a verse you are well aware of in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Flat out. That's what must be believed in the heart. Don't believe that, do not be saved. But surely by now you're asking the question, why? Why is it so important to the gospel? And why is this so important to, to their comfort and encouragement and to our comfort and encouragement? Because the resurrection of Christ is God's own testimony. It's, it's as if God has taken the witness stand... And he is testifying and he is declaring that Christ's suffering is once and for all. He once suffered. His suffering is once and for all because it accomplished all that it was designed to accomplish, which is the satisfying of God's justice and the salvation of his people. It did what it was designed to do. In Romans 5, verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by, literally, we shall be saved in His life. In His life. Believers... Those who have confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in their heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Believers, all believers are in union with Christ's resurrected life. The life that they now live in the flesh. They live by the faith of the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them. It's his life, it's Christ's life in them and they in Christ's life. So because we are in union with the life of Jesus Christ, the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, death has been abolished. Death has been abolished because where there was the death of Christ, there was the death of death but there was also the resurrection unto life through the resurrection of Christ. The death of death and the death of Jesus, yes, so vital, so necessary, but there was also the resurrection of life in Christ's resurrection. So, so when, Peter, when Peter states that Christ arose from the dead in this context, as he's writing to these people who are suffering, and many of them would have been put to death by Nero, who was emperor at that point in time. He says, listen. 
by the resurrection of Christ, he's risen from the dead. Death has been abolished. That means that there will be no second death for you. Anyone who is in Christ are not going to experience that second death we read about in the Bible class. Why? For there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No, no condemnation. Now I dread, I am my Lord's, and he is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's what Wesley was talking about. Death has been abolished. There is no second death to fear. There is no spiritual death. You know, we, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, dead, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. You hath he quickened together with Christ made alive oh I get it I get that's what I need to hear that's what I need to believe when I am in the midst in the midst of trouble and suffering and fiery trials I'm not, those wicked who are they're spiritually dead but I'm not they're lost they're undone but I have Christ's life in me. I've been begotten again from the dead, risen with Christ. And the fact is, because Christ has abolished death, there is no physical death. <gasps> but preacher, look at the graveyards. There's Christians in the graveyards. Yeah, I get that. But you see, the real essence of death is the punishment of sin. And there is no punishment for sin for all who are in union with Jesus Christ because he has been punished in our stead. So really there is no, yeah, we'll die, these bodies will die, but there is no physical death as far as the real essence of death is concerned, which is punishment. Death is passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's Romans 5. That's punishment. But our death will not be punishment. You, you wonder why the, the New Testament describes it as asleep? It's just asleep. It's a good night. I'll see you in the morning. But it's just good night. Death has lost its sting. Second thing that Peter says, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, who is gone into, literally entered into heaven. He's, he's writing to comfort them. They're suffering, they're hurting. No doubt many are fearful what the future holds. There's great sorrow, trouble, 
What's Peter doing? He's putting their eyes on Jesus, particularly Christ and his exaltation. He had their eyes for a while upon his suffering, his death, but now he's turned to his exaltation. He entered into heaven. Acts chapter 1, you'll read about that account after 40 days of teaching his disciples and showing himself alive by many infallible proofs. And after commissioning them to be his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth, Luke writes, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's all you get from Luke. But you get a little more from David. Hundreds of years removed, David prophesies of this in Psalm 68, this very event in Psalm 68. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. That's resurrection, folks. That's ascension. That's his ascension. Did you get the point? 20,000 chariots, thousands of angels. At the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. In linking that passage in Luke, in Acts by Luke, with what David said in Psalm 68, one old divine wrote this. It would seem that the two radiant messengers who appeared to the disciples as they were gazing after their master with ardent eyes formed only a small part of his celestial retinue. It would seem that in his train there were thousands and myriads of the chariots or cavalry of God, that legions of the heavenly hierarchies and a countless multitude of the noblest of created beings tuned their harps or sounded their trumpets in his praise. Now imagine they were singing, Lift up your hands, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Not just two angels there. Myriads of angels. Another old commentator stated what he called an improbable conjecture, though nothing more. That the many saints who came out of their graves at the resurrection of Christ would have joined the Savior as he ascended into heaven, them being the first fruits. When you think for a moment about the fact that Christ has entered into heaven, you can see why Peter uses that to comfort these suffering saints. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Finish it for us. He's entered into heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. 
in Hebrews 6, this same apostle says that Christ has entered within the veil. Another description of him entering into heaven, this time called within the veil. In the next verse, verse 20 of chapter 6, whither or where the forerunner is entered, even Jesus, or more literally, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner, one who has gone before us. The picture is of Christ going in advance of a great company of people. And his entrance into heaven, this is what the apostle is driving home. Funny enough, these were Christians who were suffering for their faith. He's, he's seeking to comfort them and to encourage them to endure, to go on. And he brings up Jesus, the forerunner, who has entered into heaven. His entrance into glory, his entrance into heaven as the forerunner guarantees that this entire company of people, all who have been saved by Christ, will also enter into heaven. Why don't you think about that more in the midst of your suffering and your sorrows and your troubles and your fears? My forerunner has gone ahead of me. He's gone through all the suffering. He's died. He's risen again. And he's gone ahead of me as my forerunner. And it is guaranteed that I will, I will go through all the sufferings. I will endure to the end. And I will land in heaven one day and be there with him. Because the forerunner has gone before me. You see, Peter was writing to these people who were in the midst of great persecution and who were facing the possibility of having to lay down their lives for Jesus Christ. I say it's hard for us to really understand, to really sympathize with that. I'm not meaning for one moment to make light of your troubles or mine. They're real. The sorrows are real. They hurt. But I've never had to face that. I've never had my children taken from me by force by the government or my spouse taken away and put to death. I've never been beaten, whipped, scourged. But that's what they were facing. What does Peter say to comfort them? Christ, Christ has gone before you into heaven and so will you. So all is well. Isn't that true? All is well that ends well. Isn't that true? You see, if the forerunner has gone into heaven, but any part of the company fails to enter in for whatever reason, the one who's really failed is the forerunner. Not anyone in the company. It's the forerunner that's failed. And one thing we do know about Jesus is that he never fails. We do, but he never fails. 
If Christ died to atone for my sins, then he did, he did not simply make that atonement possible. He actually atoned for them. And if Christ entered into heaven as my forerunner, he didn't simply make my entrance a possibility, he made it a divine certainty that I would enter into heaven with that company. How could he be my forerunner if there was never the realizing of my entrance into heaven? Is that not something that will cheer our souls and soothe our sorrows in the worst of times? It's going to end well. It's always well with the righteous. It's ill with the wicked. But it's always well with the righteous. Thirdly, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God. Peter is still dealing with how Christ triumphed through his suffering. He's, he's still dealing with how his humiliation led to his exaltation and why there is comfort there. That expression is found in Psalm 110 where Jehovah is speaking to the Messiah. Uh, David writes, The Lord said unto my Lord, Jehovah said unto my Adonai, he's referring to the Messiah, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. The right hand of God sits permanently a point of power and authority. But power and authority to do what exactly? And here's where the comfort comes in when you look at this in the New Testament Christ at the right hand of God. First, it is power and authority to intercede at the right hand of God. Power and authority to intercede. Hebrews 8 verse 1, We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So he says it. Well, what's he doing there? All you have to do is back up a few verses into chapter 7 verse 24. Because Christ, the apostle wrote, has this unchangeable or this perpetual priesthood, he is able, the word dunamis again, power, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He ever lives at the right hand of God to make intercession. He has this power and this authority to make intercession for them at the right hand of God. Now, you know, of course, we're not talking about a literal throne or a literal right hand of God because God doesn't have a right hand. God is spirit, it's imagery. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the priest of his people has entered into heaven and is at the right hand of God, simply stating, Christ is in a place in glory of power and authority, and he's there to intercede. You know, that verse really tells us how Jesus saves 
save to the uttermost? It's that verse that tells us, like no other, how Jesus saves. Yes, he died to atone for our sins. He shed his blood. But something else has to happen, folks. Go to the Old Testament. Look at the the lamb being slain in the Passover lamb once in a year on the Day of Atonement. The blood was shed on the brazen altar. But it would have been useless had the high priest not gone into the Holy of Holies and there sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat. The blood had to be applied. It wasn't enough that the blood was shed. And it's not enough that Jesus Christ died. Our salvation comes through Jesus applying his work, applying what he accomplished on the cross. It's the accomplishment of redemption. It's the application of redemption. He ever lives to make intercession for all those that come unto God through him to save them. No intercession, no salvation. Every Everything that Christ accomplished on the cross through his blood atonement has to be applied. Every covenant blessing you and I will ever enjoy, a covenant blessing is a promise blessing by God. He's entered into a covenant with us. And he's made very clear certain promises. Every covenant blessing has been secured by the blood of Christ. And every covenant blessing will be given by Christ through his intercession at the right hand of God. Can I just point out one of the covenant blessings that his blood secured was our ongoing forgiveness of sins in the world. Atonement. But why in the world do you think Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? Why do you think that John wrote, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's Christ as the high priest interceding for us. Father, I shed my blood for the forgiveness of their sin. Now forgive them. Under the blood. It's done. Because there's an intercessor in glory who's at the right hand of God. He has power and authority to intercede. Don't know about you, but that thrills my soul. Because I need an advocate. I need an intercessor. Someone who can successfully plead for me every moment of every day. Because I have no power of myself and I have no authority in myself. But I know one who does. And he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his exaltation, folks. And we only dishonor the Lord when we go groveling. We go groveling in our fears and sorrows. 
when we have this clear gospel truth, we have this great high priest interceding for us at the right hand of God. Honor Christ, brothers and sisters. Glorify him in trusting him. He's far greater than all your failures, far greater than all your fears put together. What fiery trial, what fiery trial can Christ's people not endure that being the case? Whether it's my sorrows or my sins, there is one who has ascended into heaven, who sits at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for me. And it's an intercession that will always prevail. I won't always prevail. I will ask for things that are contrary to the will of God. And I won't succeed. Thank the Lord for that. And I won't know what to pray for as I ought. But never will that be said of Jesus. (laughs) For my sin, I have an advocate for my sufferings and my sorrows. Paul put it like this, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We don't have a high priest. We have one who can sympathize with us. He enters into. Not just empathize. The Greek word is clear. It is the sympathy. He enters into our feelings. the right hand of God Christ has all the power and authority not only to intercede for us but to subdue all of our enemies because all of our enemies are his enemies Hebrews chapter 10 but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God listen from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. His enemies. All of them. Will eventually become his footstool. He'll put his feet on them in victory. Till his enemies... Oh, Christ is coming back again. Not coming in humiliation as a babe, but in exaltation as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how he's returning. You see why that would comfort them? What they were facing? A Nero? A pagan government? Our king will subdue these enemies. He'll take care of them. I have nothing to fear. Finally, Jesus Christ reigns. It's an extension of this last thought. Jesus Christ reigns over all spiritual and earthly powers. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, that, that, that can be a reference to all spiritual powers. 
or to spiritual powers, in other words, angelic, and then earthly powers being described by authorities and powers. It really doesn't matter which way you want to interpret it because it includes them all. If it's one expression of all spiritual powers, then if Christ is over all spiritual powers, any lesser powers, human authorities and governments, he's over them as well. So it takes in all spiritual and earthly powers. You see, it's what it comes down to. It's something what John said in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. These... In that particular case, it was the great whore and the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He's over all spiritual and earthly powers. I, I, I know there is a devil, and he's got his devils that work non-stop to bring about my demise, my defeat. He's looking for a way in. He's looking to bring me to a place where I walk away from Christ. So do these Hebrew Christians. Paul writes the letter. Peter writes, for the same reason to these persecuted Christians, strangers and pilgrims. He's always trying to do that. Satan has these angels doing his bidding, but you know what? There is this King of kings and Lord of lords, and he has angels doing his bidding. I fully believe that if the veil were lifted we would see ourselves surrounded by companies of angels if the veil were lifted. They were sent as ministering spirits. That's what Hebrews 1 teaches. The angels sent as ministering spirits. Because they're under Christ's authority. What have I to dread? The devil's going to try his best, but he's going to fail like he's always failed. He's always, his other name is failure. Failure. He will fail because Christ will conquer. Has conquered, is conquering and will come once again in all his power and glory to declare he is the victor. So, that's the triumph of Christ through his sufferings and death as seen in heaven. It's the source of your triumph in all your sufferings. And at your time of death, this is what you need. The Lord write his word in our hearts for his name's sake. We bow in prayer and seek the Lord. Father, come now and preach on to our souls. Put our eyes upon not only the suffering Savior, 
but the victorious Lamb of God, the victor. Lord, save us from being Christians in name only. For thy word says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now thy word does not lie. It's all truth. Oh, for grace now to live in the victory of the victorious Christ, in whose name we pray, amen and amen.